a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day all people and planet can thrive together. Hi, this is Gino Borges with The Journey to Impact, and I'm here with Ron Gonan, the CEO of Closed Loop Partners, an investment firm focused on building the circular economy. Prior to Closed Loop Partners, Ron was the Deputy Commissioner of Sanitation in New York City in the Bloomberg administration, oversaw the collection and processing of New York City's recyclables. Welcome, Ron. Thank you for having me. Walk us through some of the changes that you've had to do personally and professionally uh, as a result of living in New York City with uh, the current uh, pandemic. Well, it's been a significant lifestyle change. I think one of the unique uh, things about living in New York City in normal times is that it's a city that never sleeps. There's always something uh, going on and taking place and a lot of movement and action. And so to go into this experience where all of a sudden you're um, spending most of your day uh, in your apartment uh, is uh, a complete 180 from, from the life experience in New York. But it's been great to see uh, how many New Yorkers have taken Governor Cuomo's uh, clear direction about social distancing and um, staying at home as much as, 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 as possible. And it shows the, the great strength of, of New Yorkers. And how about professionally, as a result of being a fund manager, how have you guys had to adapt um, both at a logistical level, but also just at a, just a functional uh, processing level? Yeah, but I've been incredibly proud of my team. When all of this uh, first happened, it, the transition was very quick. Uh, it wasn't like we got uh, forewarned that you know, four weeks from now or you know, in a month, it was, we kind of had sort of this week where everyone got the sense that there was this challenge taking place uh, in the East Coast with the virus. And then the next thing we knew, it was everything's getting you know, shut down. And uh, I've just been incredibly proud of how quickly and capable capable my team was at transitioning to a world where you're doing everything over uh, video and uh, and over the phone. Um, so that's that's been the biggest uh, transition is just taking all these meetings from in person meetings to to being on video. And I would say for the first four to six weeks here, we haven't seen much disruption. I do think there will be significant disruption if this continues into eight or 12 weeks, because currently we're able to operate on just existing business that we have. Uh, but as investors, we, we need to visit with people and companies in order to do due diligence. And so we're starting to get close to that point where it, it, it may be disruptive. And can you tell us a little bit about um, that term circular economy? It's been out for a while. What is its origins and where did the uh, passion and identification come come from in order to say, yeah, you know, not only do I want to do it personally, but I want to do this professionally on the finance side of things and actually to start a fund that's embedded with the concept of circular economy. Sure. Well, the, 
the the seed for my interest in the circular economy comes uh, 30 years ago when I was just uh, starting high school. And uh, I grew up with a single mom, kind of lower middle class neighborhood in Philadelphia. I got a sports scholarship to go to a private school and I needed to get a job. And uh, I started working for a family, babysitting, fixing stuff around the house, whatever they needed me to do. Uh, the father of the family, uh, who at the time was in his mid thirties, uh, named Paul Mock, was, became one of the first green architects in America. He was actually a kind of up and coming, well-known architect and decided to leave his firm, uh, which was a large architectural firm where he was a, a junior partner and, and start this green architecture firm. And that's how I got introduced to these concepts very early on. And I had great admiration for the way he conducted himself and everything that he would talk about just made sense. It kind of surprised me that the world wasn't operating in this way already. And that was really the, the genesis for my, my passion for the space. And then I just ended up taking these different career steps where each step along the way, I added on a tool or a technique that would enable me to move to that, to that next step. So that's a little bit of how I got introduced to, to the space very early on. Sometimes today, people will say to me, like, where do you come up with these ideas? Like, it's just, <laughs> I want to talk about the circular economy, and you keep having solutions and ideas. And I oftentimes tell people, I, I've been working on this for 20, 25, 30 years. Yeah, you know? yeah. it's, it's now that it's actually resonating. Um, but it's something that uh, myself and, quite frankly, a number of people before me have been working on for a long time. And what we've been working on is this transition from uh, what we call a linear system, which is one in which you manufacture goods by first extracting natural resources. So if you're going to make something out of uh, that, that is plastic, you're going to extract oil, uh, you know, metal, you're going to extract ore, paper, you're going to cut down timber. You, you use it once and then you dispose of it. And that usually means a landfill, sometimes a river or an ocean. And then you start that process all over again. That system was developed in the financial best interest of the extractive industry. So the oil and gas industry, the mining industry, the timber industry, and the financial best interest of the landfill industry. It's not in the financial best interest of consumer goods companies, retailers, consumers, who are also citizens and taxpayers, and municipalities. And our vision in starting closely partners was to transition away from that linear economy to one that's circular, where you're designing products and packaging with the least amount of material possible. And the material that you are using, you're making sure that it's been uh, harvested or developed in a sustainable way, and then is continually reused as much as it possibly can. And living, in that, for that, living inside that type of circular system reduces costs, reduces environmental degradation, and is a much more equitable system for consumers and taxpayers. So what's an example? Um, taking a one-dimensional uh, product versus sort of more of a three-dimensional uh, closed-loop product that, that you've worked on that um, listeners would be familiar with. Sure. Well, let's, take a, let's take Temper Pack as an example. Uh, today, if you want to ship something that needs to be kept cold, so it could be medicine, could be food, it's going to come in probably cardboard packaging filled with a bunch of very low-grade plastic uh, foam that's going to keep it cool. 
once you take that product out of the packaging, you have to throw that low-grade plastic foam in the garbage. And then your municipality is going to pay to then stick it in a landfill. And then the next time you order something that needs to be kept cold, we start that process all over again. Extract petroleum, turn it into the foam product. That's the insulation for the paper packaging. Sure. We have a portfolio company called Temper Pack, which has developed packaging made completely from 100% recycled cardboard that has the same quality properties of the existing cold chain packaging. So now you're transitioning from packaging that you have to pay to extract oil every time you want to insulate the package. Uh, and you have to pay the, for the disposal of the packaging into a landfill with packaging that has the same quality characteristics, but continually reuses the cardboard packaging through the recycling system, saving the consumer goods companies money, saving the customer money, saving the municipality money. So why wouldn't this be, you know, just as an investor or myself and you as an investor, this would seem like almost like a fiduciary responsibility of anybody producing anything as part of a business plan to say, hey, you know what, until you're a closed loop person or a closed loop person, or you have a closed loop model being managed and influenced and, and worked on by people that are identifying with it, you're actually going to be sort of stuck in this old economy and it's actually going to be more expensive. So maybe sort of talk about like why it, it seems so obvious and why hasn't it just been picked up as a no brainer, as a cost reduction strategy. If you talk to major large consumer goods companies and retailers, they have become very focused on this concept. Uh, their challenge is they have to operate within a system that since the 1950s has been developed for the benefit of extractive industries and landfill industries. And they are looking for entrepreneurs, for investment firms that can help them build the supply chains that they're going to rely on in order to operate in a more circular uh, system. The transition is challenging because it's, uh, forcing a transition from a system that's been in operation for 50 plus years, number one. Number two is you've got two enormously powerful industries that you're taking business away from, the extractive industry and the landfill industries. Uh, and so this transition, you're going to see some very, very big financial winners. You'll also see the environment benefit mm -hmm. in a massive way. And you're going to see some big losers as well. Let's be clear about that. This is a transition away from relying on extractive industries and, and landfills as a core driver of our uh, economy. And by extractive, you mean like plastics and the oil industry will yeah. be impacted significantly? Absolutely. So if, if you reach, there's, there's a lot of benefits to plastics as a product. Right, the yeah. medical industry uses it. It's a very lightweight way to transport products. But if it is not recycled, it becomes an incredibly harmful product from an environmental standpoint. You need to continually extract more oil to manufacture it. And if it ends up in nature, it's incredibly harmful because now you're putting, you know, 
oil that's been extracted from the earth in, into the, the natural environment, which can be incredibly uh, harmful. But if you can continually recycle it, then it's a great product. Well, if you can continually recycle it, you're effectively putting the industry that continually extracts the oil to make new plastics out of business. Mm-hmm. That's a very scary thing to uh, that industry. And that's an industry that's incredibly powerful. And it's sure. sure. I mean, how, I mean, how, how do you speak truth to power? I mean, besides having your uh, closed loop partners are doing the work on a business level, I mean, there must be moments where like you come home and say, after working on something and realize like, oh my gosh, it's like, really? I, yeah. mean, I mean, how do you sort of deal with those? I mean, what, like, um, um, I mean, how do you work your way through that process? Well, being in government was actually a great <laughs> education in how to do that. And that's what I meant by my earlier comment that I've had these different experiences as I've gone along in my career that have helped me build skills that enabled me to be much more effective in my next stage. And one of the things that I learned being in government is whatever you're doing that is making the city a better place and making people's lives a better place, there are always going to be some special interests that are going to spin the story in order to try to block you. And we'll, oftentimes use money under the table to also try and get people to oppose you. And that's a very challenging experience to to go through where you know that what you're doing is helping people and that there are others out there that in a completely underhanded and disingenuous way are trying to spin the story to block you. And so I think if you're going to be successful, you have to recognize that as a reality of, um, the experience you're going to have if you pursue social progress. And rather than getting frustrated by it, look at it as a skills building opportunity from a communications and planning standpoint, and just another challenge you need to overcome. And so after having gone through my experience in the Bloomberg administration and and some of the accomplishments we were able to to achieve and and overcome and um, just squash that, uh, what I would call nefarious opposition, and really get some things done for the city that really benefited people's lives. That gave me the the, the tools and the skill set and the mentality to deal with that. You know, when I see that happen happen today, um, but the way I try to generally approach it is by uh, turning their own terminology on themselves. And what I mean by that is, people will oftentimes say to me, "Well, we're a capitalist country. I believe in capitalism." If recycled plastics were cheaper, Mm -hmm. everybody would be using them. And I say to them, you know what? I agree with you. Capitalism is a great system. Let's allow it to work. For the last 50 years, we have been providing massive subsidies to the oil and gas industry in the tune of billions of dollars a year that keeps the price of virgin plastics artificially cheap. If we want to practice capitalism, let's do it. Let's get either rid of all the subsidies, in which case virgin plastic would become more expensive than recycled plastic, or just give everybody the subsidy, in which case virgin plastic would be more 
expensive than recycled plastic. Um, and that creates a challenge for that person, right? Cause you've, you've, you've taken their argument and turns it against them. So that's just an example of, uh, what I try to do sometimes successful, sometimes not. <laughs> well, and there's another, would you agree that there's another facet to the cost that people aren't picking up is not only that they're being subsidized, but the real indirect costs of the externalities aren't even on the, uh, aren't even being factored in. Yeah, they're, you know, e- true, but e- even before you get to the externalities, there's so many points of subsidization hmm. of the linear economy using taxpayer money that if you just wiped all of that out, it would completely change the system. So you have a subsidy from the standpoint of the government is giving um, funds or tax breaks to the oil and gas industry. So that's subsidy number one. Subsidy number two is it's the taxpayer that pays to landfill all of these products and packaging. So that's subsidy number two. Like, Why doesn't the the, the government, the steward of the taxpayer, go to these companies and say, hey, it's capitalism. You're welcome to manufacture whatever you want, sell whatever you want, but you have to be responsible for the cost of putting it in the landfill. In the landfill. We're talking capitalism here, right? That's the second subsidy. And between those two, we're talking about tens of billions of dollars of subsidies that taxpayers are providing every year to keep this linear system Operable, so those externalities absolutely need to be talked about and included. But even before you get to the externalities, just the literal annual hard costs that um, are forced upon uh, the taxpayer by the linear system. If we could just get rid of that, um, you'd have a, a massive, a massive shift. Um, the challenge is um, there are some industries and investors that are going to lose a lot of money. When that shift, you know, if that shift were to take place, and, and there'll be others, the, the folks that are investing in innovation that'll end up making a lot of money and doing a lot of good for the environment. You mentioned uh, before we started this conversation, uh, we were talking a little bit about you taking your uh, two children to Central Park um, a couple times a day as as a break, as an exercise break, and and to be in touch with uh, the natural world. Curious on, on how you talk about the circular economy to uh, your kids, and, uh, and 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 to your extended family. Yeah, well, my kids are very young, um, so they're. Uh, how old are they? <laughs> I have a twenty uh, month old and and a couple month old. Um, oh, nice, good for you. So okay. They're still I very very. very I, I have a two year old, so I mean, I totally get where you're going. Yeah, so they're very young. But um, but they'll they'll grow up seeing how we live in our apartment and understand the circular economy from just a day to day livability standpoint. Mm-hmm. But in terms of my um, family and friends, it's been an interesting evolution for me because I think that when I was in high school and college and probably through my mid twenties, most of my friends and family I think viewed me as overly idealistic. They <laughs> me as someone who uh, seemed to have a good head on his shoulders and did well in school. And if I wanted to apply myself to just eye banking or consulting or the law, I could probably make a lot of money and you know, get to some type of senior position. But I had this, this streak of idealism in me and it sort of 
made them kind of like shake their head a little bit. Like, when's he going to lose this? That's how I felt people perceived me in high school and, and into my 20s. Um, but as I began to have uh, success in business, in my entrepreneurial pursuits, focused on, on, on the circular economy, um, I saw people's perception of me actually change. I, I didn't change. I was the same person. But sure. the perception of me um, changed. Um, it still perplexes them a little bit because we're so inundated with you can't do good and make money at the same time, or you must be a jerk in order to maximize returns that it, 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 people still aren't exactly sure how I do it or what I'm doing. But fortunately I've been able with the help of some really great team members to have, you know, a moderate amount of, of, of success. And who are your mentors in the space in order to sort of help you through that? So um, you don't feel like you're sort of doing it alone. Sure. So um, I'll mention three. So one is Paul Macht, who uh, was the architect that I worked for when I was growing up doing stuff around, around his house. Then I would say uh, Fred Keller. Fred is uh, chairman and the former CEO of a company called Cascade Engineering in Michigan large company, thousand plus employees. And Fred has been practicing sustainability within his company way before it was even a term and was somebody that when I started my first company, Recycle Bank, took a chance on me and my company. Hmm. And uh, I, I owe a tremendous amount to for both giving me a shot, but also representing that you can be just a good human being, a good manager, a philanthropic person, empathetic, and be incredibly successful in business. That was, that was important for me to see in my late twenties when he uh, he first gave me gave me a shot by having his company uh, partner with 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 my company. And then the third is somebody who actually. Uh, works for, for me is, is named Bob Milligan. And Bob uh, was my first hire when I started my first company in 2004. Bob at the time was probably in his 60s already <laughs> and yeah. had, uh, had a very, very successful career in the waste and recycling industry and had actually retired and was doing some consulting work and learned about my first company and what I was doing. And we got introduced and he's been my partner ever since. And I've just learned a tremendous amount from him in terms of um, how business actually works. Like what I oftentimes tell people is I actually tell this to my students at Columbia Business School. I've been teaching a course there uh, since 2010 on, on entrepreneurship. And that unfortunately, most people graduate uh, tier one business schools without the two most important classes that you need in business, which is sales 101 and <laughs> HR 101. <laughs> And so when I started my first company straight out of Columbia Business School, um, I needed Bob as a mentor to teach me about uh, sales 101 and, and HR 101. And uh, going on almost 20 years later, he's, he's, he's kind of been my guardian angel all the way. Hmm. Gosh, that's such a fortunate um, 
That's such a beautiful story. And it, it, it means so much when somebody puts just an ounce of belief in uh, us, right? I, my, my, my life story is like a series of people coming into my life that just, for whatever reason, mentored me and helped me to get to that next level. And then someone else came into my life. And um, I've just been so blessed to just have these people come into my life and just kind of help me at each step you know, along, uh, along the way. And do you, have you gotten to the point where you have um, embodied uh, a circular form of mentoring where you're circling back with the, where you see younger people coming uh, behind you? Absolutely. And um, I, uh, I've, I've, I've tried to, I've tried to do that even starting in high school because I was getting that from someone and, and, and tried to get back even, even starting in high school. And I've tried to do that um, throughout, uh, throughout my career. And, um, you know, one of the nice things about teaching actually, uh, is that, um, you know, if, if, if you give it the proper attention, you get this experience where years later, so it could be three years later, four years later, seven years later, you get a phone call or an email from somebody who says, Hey, can I get on the phone and just get advice from you? And they, and they think they're being a burden on you. But in, in my mind, I'm thinking like, you were in my class seven years ago. Like you actually remember something that I taught. It was so important that seven years later, you, you want to get on the phone and talk or um, somebody will send me an email and say that, that thing that we taught and I, and you gave me that model and I just used it so on and so forth. So um, I'm, I'm always looking and available to, you know, to do that. And if, if it's, if it's helpful for somebody. Hmm. Now you mentioned in 2004 you started your first business and then um, you had success in business uh, and then went into the Bloomberg administration. I'd like to understand the why behind going from just the, the sheer activity and the rawness and the sales and the HRness and having at least from an, from a perceived perspective like a little bit more control over the destiny and just like making life happen to like boom hitting an oak tree and going into government and trying to move the oak tree. So just trying, trying to understand the why there a little bit. Sure. Well, my, my government experience was extremely unique in that I was working for Mayor Bloomberg in his last term uh, in New York City. Things operated far more efficiently and the caliber of people that I was working with was incredible. And so I, I want to provide that as background because I think someone like me who's, who's an entrepreneur um, would, would struggle in a typical government process. What makes the world go round is people have different skill sets and expertise, and it's really important that society put the right people in the right places. The right place for me is in uh, business as an entrepreneur and grower of, of, of companies. There's other people that are phenomenal administrators and what they really need to be doing is, is helping operate civil service and, and government. Every once in a while, you get this Venn diagram <laughs> where uh, skill sets merge and align. And that's a lot of what you saw in the Bloomberg administration and the people he recruited in. So I provide that as, 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 as preface for um, my, my answer. I wasn't going into a typical government situation, 
But uh, my interest has always been social policy, environment. How can I use whatever business or technology skills I might have to make a difference? That's, that's my passion in life. And so when this opportunity came along to join the administration, I had to do some introspective thinking and say, well, where could I have the most impact right now? And the answer is pretty clear, which was running a massive municipal agency in New York. Um, and that's how I ended up there. And were you recruited or, how, I mean, they actually yeah. came to you and say, hey, look, I mean, we know your background and um, you recruited. And then also at the same, so a follow, uh, related question, like, what were you doing when you were, were recruited? Were you in sort of a transition time already? So you were sort of open? Because typically, if somebody's like locked and loaded, uh, they usually sort of locked and loaded on growing a business. They actually actually block out the world to some extent. Yeah, it was perfect. Uh, yeah, it was perfect timing. I, I had 18 months prior, I had um, exited my first company and was trying to figure out what's my next step. I was helping do a, a turnaround transition for a, a, a green consulting firm and um, was sitting on a board and starting to teach at Columbia, but was really trying to think about how do I find that same passion that I had when I was running this business that I, I, I founded. And uh, lo and behold, this, this opportunity uh, came my way. So there, there were things that I was doing and, and working on, but I wasn't you know, full time on any, any one thing. I was kind of in this transitional period after uh, exiting my first company. Mm -hmm. And when people who aren't in business ask you, like, I mean, how could I incorporate the circular economy? I mean, when you speak, like, let's say you're given an opportunity to go and mm -hmm. speak to a, um, you know, 2000 kids who are just graduating from, from the university um, you know, Columbia University, and you have a chance to sort of touch on how they can become involved in the circular economy. I mean, how how would you advise them or what would you suggest that, I mean, they look for pedestrian level, like the everyday, but then perhaps maybe um, on a professional basis? I would say if people tell you, I would say if you're looking at something or you're asking a question and the answer that people give you to what you're looking at or to your question is that's the way it's always been done or it just has to be that way. Assume it hasn't always been done that way and assume that what's behind that answer is someone who's gaming the system for their own benefit, and keep exploring and you will find an opportunity to disrupt a system that's, either suboptimal or probably corrupt in some way. And it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a lot of challenges, uh, but you'll have an opportunity to make a, make a difference. And that oftentimes for kids is that kind of aha moment of like, Hey, you know, I've, I've asked a lot of questions and people told me, you know, it's always been this way. I, a, uh, a graph that I show or a, a slide that I show my students at, uh, at Columbia is, um, I showed them that the top 10 companies in New York state starting in 1950 going in, in 10 year increments. Hmm. And the reason I show that to them is that basically every decade 
there was a minimum 50% turnover in who was in that top 10. Meaning that if someone says to you, like, ah, this is the way it's always been done, or, hey, those guys are the biggest companies, you know, that, that, that's never going to change. But that's completely devoid of, of the data. And one of the great things that, that, that Bloomberg used to say <laughs> was uh, people would come to him with all these like, great ideas and, you know, all that and it, it is saying, in God, we all trust. For everything else, just bring the data. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm somebody who uh, always wants to go look at the data and make sure that what people are saying is, is, actually, is actually true. And oftentimes it's not. Not because, and they're oftentimes not intentionally trying to mislead anybody. They were misled, and the person that misled them, you know, was misled. That's why you know, Freakonomics or Malcolm Gladwell's books are so popular. Is they dispel these notions that people have had to assume are true, but in fact are not. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful uh, piece of wisdom to actually end on. Um, I'm Gino Borges with the Journey to Impact series. I'm with uh, Ron Gonan, the CEO of Closed Loop Partners. Ron, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, great conversation. Glad to be with you. Thank you for listening to the Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com.